0: This episode of Guess That Record is sponsored by Marvel Marketing. Marvel Marketing is a full-service digital marketing agency headquartered in Calgary, Alberta, that creates digital impact for your company. To find out more, visit marvelmarketing.ca. Hello and welcome to the third episode of Guess That Record. I am your host, Jackson Reed. I want to thank everyone who has tuned in to the first few episodes so far. It's a brand new podcast, so I greatly appreciate the support. This is the show where we talk about music and try to figure out which album I pulled from my collection. Our guest this week is a senior music editor for Rolling Stone, where his work frequently appears. His writing has also been featured in publications like the New York Times, GQ, and Pitchfork. And in 2011, he wrote a book on Ween's Chocolate and Cheese album for 33 and a third. He also hosts the Heavy Metal Bebop podcast and has performed music with bands such as Stats. I'm pleased to welcome Hank Steamer to guest that record. How are you doing, Hank? Doing just
1: fine. Thanks for having me, Jackson.
0: No problem. So you currently reside in Brooklyn. Yep. And how is it there today?
1: It's freezing. Oh. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, it's been very cold, um, and yeah, you know the the COVID thing is still, you know, everything's kind of up in the air. You know, uh, uh, you know, places are open, but but things feel a little bit desolate. Um, still feels a little bit locked down, um, and I think everyone's kind of just trying to figure out what the next phase of this is going to be.
0: Totally. Yeah. Um, it's sort of funny cause I, um, I mentioned on, uh, the last episode of the podcast that, uh, New York was the last place that I traveled to before COVID. Um, and, uh, Brooklyn was one of the few places I wasn't able to visit while I was, I was only there for like four days. So we were kind of running around Manhattan mostly, but, um, yeah, I, I would love to go back and like properly go everywhere. So, yeah.
1: Yeah, I have been here for like 20 years and definitely haven't explored everything in the five boroughs, so I'm still working on it.
0: Yeah. Uh so to start things off here, uh what was the first song that you remember hearing uh that really made you take music seriously?
1: That's a good question. Um I definitely remember my parents playing me the Beatles. Um I think Hello Goodbye was one that they used to play that I liked a lot. Yeah, you know, it's it's hard to remember, but I I, I remember um, that early early kind of like glam metal hard rock stuff being that I think that's probably when I started to develop like tastes of my own. So maybe something like uh, Pour Some Sugar on Me or one of the early Def Leppard hysteria singles. Probably right around that time. I'm sure there was stuff before. I mean, I definitely listened to like you know I can remember Michael Jackson on the radio, um, things like that, um, but that. Glam metal, hard rock stuff is pretty big in terms of like forming my own tastes.
0: Yeah. And it's funny because this is the third episode of the podcast and our previous two guests also mentioned uh, the Beatles as like one of the first things they remember hearing. So it's funny how that's so similar for so many people.
1: Yeah, my parents, um, they're not like enormous music heads, but they have their, you know, kind of core of what they were into from when they were younger and I definitely remember those blue and red Beatles compilation records were, uh, they, they had, my parents had like a modest set of their LPs from when they were younger. And those were, those were among them probably the white album. Um, but yeah, that was, they were definitely turning me on to that.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, now I'm, I'm excited to have you here on the show because uh I recently just graduated with a degree in journalism, and, awesome. that, and that's that's how we met uh, originally because I pitched a story to you. Um, so I was just kind of curious to learn about your career path and how you ended up at Rolling Stone. Um,
1: you know, I guess um, probably in school always, you know, kind of the English side of things, you know, um, as opposed to the math and science was always what I was gravitating towards, you know, reading a lot as a kid. Um, and, um, I think that the first, I I think there was like a middle school paper that my school had growing up. I grew up in Kansas city. Um, there were, I I remember writing some like music reviews, uh, for that. Um, I, I I'm pretty positive. The first thing I ever like technically published in that area was a review of the spin doctors album pocket flow kryptonite. Um, So that's sort of showing my rough age and era. Um, But yeah, you know, again, growing up being really into really into reading and then and then the music thing sort of took over probably around fifth, sixth grade. And then, you know, those two interests just stayed really strong. Um, And then, you know, I I, I wrote for some sort of like zines in in high school, um, like, you know, just covering like underground music that I was into, I kind of approached some people. I know that in college, I, I went to college at uh, Columbia up here in New York and started working for the radio station, had a jazz radio show, and I, I just was going out to a lot of jazz shows and approaching um, approaching websites and publications about you know to see if people would be up for me reviewing concerts. I think I think a lot of the early experience I got was just through that, just through like, oh well, this you know I'm seeing this paper around town. I'm gonna go check out the show. Maybe they wanted someone to write it up. Um, and and getting in touch with people that way. There, there were like publications like all about jazz, um, which was which was like a, a local paper that's still going under a different name. Um, but and then also the All Music Guide, which you're probably familiar with, like AllMusic.com, um, which is still very much around. Um, I started writing reviews for them also when I was still in college, and then when I got out of college. It was a lot of just like again just like you know i would be reading various magazines and i would just start pitching them you know smaller jazz specialty magazines a lot of that stuff and then um and then after a few years of kind of doing other things to make money and then freelancing i was i got an internship and then eventually a job with this uh publication called timeout new york which was like a events like art and entertain arts and entertainment like events magazine in new york um and then that was you know just a lot of uh kind of we would preview the shows that were happening so you know i'd interview artists that were coming to town or review records or uh blurbing you know uh shows that were coming up and that was that was kind of my first experience on a real kind of full-time level like doing something like this um and i was there for in one form or another for like 10 years Um, and then have been at rolling stones since uh 2015. Um, and, you know, freelancing for a lot of places in, in between there. I mean, I think a lot of it has just been like, you know, reading all the music publications I could. And, and 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 then I think eventually you kind of find yourself being like, well, I would like to. I'd like to see myself in that publication or I, I could envision this piece running in that. But, you know, identifying like a, a sort of a a vacuum somewhere and then finding out how you could fill it. I mean, I think there's so much more now um it's harder to find those vacuums i think because things have you know there's so many people writing about music there's so many outlets on the web um and i think that things have got only gotten more and more and more like specialized um but that's pretty much how it went for me it was just kind of like you know this is what i'm interested in what outlets could i potentially pitch and you know finding people to give give you a break or take a shot on you and um yeah, music was always really my greatest interest kind of, you know, eclipsing everything else. And, you know, I, I never really had much ambition to write about anything else. Um, but it's still a challenge. I mean, I think that, you know, my, you know, I, I am a musician, but started out as a sort of a self-taught one drummer um, and been playing guitar for a few years, but, but now I'm, I'm really trying to. You know, I'm just trying to learn more about the nuts and bolts of music, and that how to how to apply that. I think that that's always been kind of a question for me. Of, you know, wanting to write for a general audience, but bring the side of me that is a player as well, and a and a you know kind of a creator of music into it. Um, and that's yeah, and that's also been a big part of my life too. Is you know performing in bands and things like that. So just kind of like trying to figure out how to you know, structure my life so that I was as much around music and around writing as I could be, you know. Mm-hmm.
0: And as um, senior music editor with Rolling Stone, are you sort of in charge of most of the music articles that get written by the publication?
1: The titles are a little confusing in the sense that I am one of several senior editors that we have. Um, I am, I'm part of the equation, um, in term, probably specializing more on like kind of the rock metal side of things um we have other editors who specialize in you know anything from you know latin music to hip hop um it's it's a real it's a pretty large team over there um but yeah i mean i'm you know editing larger features um a lot of times um you know helping out with with the the bigger like lists or roundups that we do you know we we've done like 100 greatest drummers 100 greatest uh, metal albums um we did like a 50 greatest bassists um things like that and um you know just just working with writers on on pitches for larger features that they have about anything from like classic r b to you know singer songwriters to you know it's just a real wide variety of stuff I, i like to just try to like work with the writers on feature like deep deep dive features that are really meaningful to them um and you know i'm also i'm also a writer i mean i think that um that tends to come second because the the job description isn't is really an editor role um, but i i try to make time for my own stuff and i've had you know moderate success doing that um you know try try to try to pick my kind of pick my spots and figure out you know a handful of major projects a year to kind of um get get lost in which um you know I, I, again i think it's kind of like with the playing music and writing about it i think you know the the you know being a writer makes you a better editor and, and vice versa you know i think that they're complementary skill sets and um but you know writing is you know th- th- nothing really beats you know working on your own story you know what i mean like really having your own Something you're you really want to go after and kind of seeing it through the whole way and having the time and space to do that that's something that I value a lot.
0: Mm-hmm. And um, when did you uh, start with Rolling Stone?
1: Uh, July twenty fifteen I think was when I, when I started up there. Yeah. Uh, did you like freelance with them before? No, I didn't. Um, I hadn't written for them at all. Um, I'd written. I was freelancing for a fair amount of other people. It was a friend, a friend of mine who was there. A guy by the name of Chris Weingarten, who's another great writer who also did a 33 and a third book on Public Enemy. Um, And he and I had uh, known each other for a long time just through we're actually both drummers in kind of the same music scene and both writers. Um, And so we kind of had this dual citizenship thing. And uh, and yeah, there was an opening and he, uh, you know, graciously kind of floated my name and. You know, I, I started speaking to them about that, and so it, it came through that it wasn't through any prior work that I had done.
0: Okay, um, I just I got to ask uh, out of uh, curiosity here, but when you first got published in Rolling Stone, did you play some Doctor Hook?
1: <laughs> I, I I didn't. Um, I, that that would that would have made sense though, and and I think you know it is it is it is cool to be a part of a publication with such a such a history for sure. Um, and to try to, you know, I think everyone is trying to kind of leave their own stamp on it, you know, um, getting comfortable enough there that I could be myself, I think was a big step. I think for a while you want to just kind of learn the ropes, but then, you know, hopefully you can kind of figure out, okay, well, what is, what is there that I could contribute to this? I mean, you know, I, I got to work, gotten to work with, you know, people like David Frick, you know, um, uh, Rob Sheffield, I mean. You know, like, like, like I, I, you know, I definitely have a lot of respect for the, the history of it and I'm happy to, you know, contribute in whatever way.
0: Now, being a, a writer and you've also done your own work with uh, podcasts like the, the Heavy Metal Bebop podcast, you've done a lot of interviews. Who are uh, some of the biggest uh, names you've gotten the chance to speak with?
1: Well, I, you know, it's interesting because I think there are bigger names and I think that there are bigger names, you know, to me. Okay so I interviewed Nicki Minaj one time um before she was really super famous um I've interviewed a couple of the guys in Metallica in different settings um I did a thing for Rolling Stone where I s- that I did a sort of a moderated interview with Dave Grohl and Ringo Starr Blue Reed was part of when I was talking to the Metallica thing it was when they did the record with Lou Reed and I did interview Lou Reed briefly um uh, that that was a a bumpy ride, but a a good, good experience. Um, I think that, you know, maybe the more niche stuff is just as important to me. I mean, one that meant a lot to me was I interviewed a Robert Fripp from King Crimson. You know, he he wasn't doing a lot of interviews around that time. um, And I I, I got to fly to London and, and speak to him. There's some people who have been interviewed, you know, thousands of times, and maybe you might have 15 minutes with them on the phone, and maybe you don't really feel like you get much out of them that they haven't said a million times, you know, like I interviewed Donald Fagan from Steely Dan on the phone, and that was a little bit like that kind of experience. I didn't feel like I really got to really get but then I interviewed Walter Becker from Steely Dan at a different time. And I feel like I really was able to kind of have more of an in depth conversation with him. But again, yeah, some of the most meaningful ones have turned out, you know, they haven't been the, the bigger names necessarily. I mean, there's a jazz vibraphone player named Walt Dickerson that was sort of out out of the spotlight. Um, he had made some records uh, from about the late 50s through the early 80s. And he's kind of a cult figure and no one really knew what had become of him. And, and I, I got his contact information through another musician and visited him at his home in Philadelphia. He died. Walt Dickerson died a few years ago. I can't remember what it was. It was early, maybe or three, four, five, something like that. Um, like, like I really had no idea what this guy was up to, and that to me has sometimes been a little more special than necessarily than just the big name. It's more about I'd rather have like the more in depth conversation or feel like I can bring something to it that hasn't necessarily been brought. to you. Like for example, I interviewed Bill Ward, the drummer of Black Sabbath, on that Heavy Metal Bebop podcast, which was also very meaningful. Because he's been interviewed a thousand times, but maybe not necessarily in that exact context. Like I I wanted to talk to him specifically about jazz and how that informed what he did. And so, you know, I I don't want to interview someone just because they're a big name. I want to interview someone because I love their work and I feel like I have something to bring to it that maybe you haven't seen before.
0: For sure. Um, I wanted to ask you about um, the book you wrote for uh, 33 and a Third. Uh, What was that process like?
1: Uh, well, thirty-three and a third. Are, are you familiar with the series? I am. Yeah. Yeah. So um, you know, I think I think they're basically still doing it now the way they were. You know, they have these periodic like open calls for pitches for the series, and you know, you would sort of just uh, basically say, "This is the album I want to pitch, and this is the approach I want to take to it." And because the series isn't really formatted, it's more like it, it's a book about an album, but the approach varies, uh, you know, very you know, wi- widely from from title to title. I had pitched, you know, I'd seen the series around and wanted to do something, and was kind of on the lookout for when they were opening up the call. And um, I, I pitched, I pitched one the year before that. I think it, I pitched a Rush album, I believe that pitch was turned down. Um, and I thought a lot about what I wanted to do. Um, I thought about what I would pitch the next time, you know, how I how I could come up with something that would sort of stand out. And I, you know, Ween is a band I'd always really liked, um, and there was something about them that sort of stood out to me as like a band with a like a really strong fan base that um, you know, there was no book about them, there wasn't much to read about them, you know, but they were like sort of this cult favorite band. And, you know, and I and I also kind of I had interviewed one of the guys for time out, so I got the sense that they weren't that hard to read and sure to get to. Um, and that they would probably participate if I could get if I could get the thing over the net. Um so, yeah, I mean, I, I was kind of interested by this thing with them where they were like, you know, it was kind of this uniquely like 90s phenomenon where it was like two guys making this kind of lo-fi music on their four track just for their own amusement. And it was super just kind of this this oddball kind of DIY thing that somehow because of the market conditions in the 90s was able to um, find its way into mass culture, um, you know, kind of in the. In, you know in in that kind of alternative era the the post nirvana thing where you know a band like that could get signed and you know and and you know now to you know, i mean there was just something fascinating to me about this band that yeah started off that way two guys just messing around in a four track and then now they're like headlining red rocks i was just very i was like how did that happen you know like 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 and and, and the record that i picked chocolate and cheese was kind of like a a way to talk about that because that was a record where they kind of um the two records before that, I don't know how familiar you are with the Ween catalog, but like the two records before that very much like sounded like they were on four track, you know, they were, it sounded like they were recorded, you know, at home, you know, they got like drum machine and real, like, super trippy and kind of warped sounding. And then Chocolate and Cheese was the one where they, they had used like real drums on their first record, God, Ween, Satan, but Chocolate and Cheese had a much more like hi-fi kind of sound to it. And it sounded more like a full band and and so i pitched that one and i didn't really know what i was doing with that i'd never written a book um i didn't have much of a um didn't have much of a road map for that so i just i just kind of did it i mean i i you know ween was you know those guys were cooperative i mean especially dean ween mickey mickey Melchiando was super helpful with that and talked to me for at length um, and i just kind of tracked down everyone i could you know it was like looking in the liner notes and like you know who was the You know, who took the cover photo and who was their uh, manager at the time and who were the sidemen and who um, I interviewed everyone, everyone that I could find. I mean, it was the the only the only person I did not end up finding was the the cover model of Chocolate and Cheese. Um, I sort of looked all over um, and could not figure out where that woman was today. I never, never did. Um, I think I pretty much got everyone else who had anything to do with that album. I, I, I interviewed them. So that's kind of the approach I like to take to a project like that. And, you know, the the, the book, I mean, you know, it was 10 years ago. I was, I, I think I'm a much better writer now than I was then. I, I, I don't, I don't, I'm not, I'm proud of, I'm proud that I did it. I'm proud of the interview portions of it. I think there's good information in there. Um, the writing, I don't love looking back at there. I, I think I could, could do better now with the writing. But I mean, I think that that's going to be, you know i think that's just a sign you know if, if if i look back at it and felt like i hadn't gotten any better then that would maybe be a cause for concern since it's been 10 years <laughs> right um you know but you know 33 and a third is it, it's still going strong and i'm proud to be a part of it and i and i think you know i, I definitely have heard from you know some ween fans over the years that that, that like the book and feel like source of information you know maybe gives them some background on the songs um and you know ween themselves you know they they for a while they were like selling it on their web store or i think they sold it their shows for a while so they were that was cool the, ween was the right size you know they they're like a they're like a mid level you know in terms of like you know they're they were re- relatively accessible to me you know i i didn't have to go through some you know it wasn't like you know trying to get an interview with robert plant or something like that you know
0: I have a brand new segment here on this podcast uh, called show and tell. And we talked about this before uh, we did the interview uh, where I wanted to kind of like include the guest in showing off an album as well. Uh, so I instructed you to think about the first album that you remember owning. So uh, yeah, if you uh, are ready for that, you can share it with us here.
1: Yeah. I think going back to, what we were talking about before. I'm pretty sure that the first album that I like sort of bought as an album, like consciously was hysteria by Def Leppard. I want to say we're talking about like, third grade, like third or fourth grade. I mean, I'm trying to maybe I have the timeline off on that. I I really have to check but but it it, it seemed I, I seem to remember like like seeing like another kid like had it in class. And I remember this kid showing me the, the Def Leppard cassette. And I'm pretty sure that I went out and and bought it. I mean, like I, I definitely remember like listening to that record like as a record and like listening to the non-singles. And they were they were you know they were a big a big band for me. I mean, I think that I think that there was something about that era and specifically that band where you know it was like it was framed as you know like heavy metal or I, I'm doing air quotes um, you know framed as like heavy metal or kind of having this like i don't know like 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 rebellious you know sort of sort of you know like real like rock you know hard rocking quality but it's like you listen back to that stuff and it's like so pop you know it's like it's so catchy and accessible And obviously that album is sort of famously you know with the mutt lang production and the kind of over the top sound of it and you know it's just it's just you know very it's like uh bubblegum pop music like Filtered through, you know, hard rock or something like that, and mm-hmm. and you know, it, it was it was just um, that definitely sent me down into this thing of, you know, I I think my whole journey from that point to up through, you know, high school and on from you know, was was just like opening the door to this world of hard rock and heavy metal and just moving further and further and further into the extremes of that, but just being excited by you know a, a rock band. You know, kind of larger than life, like rock band thing, like like, and and that just happened to be. I didn't have any awareness of what came before. I was not. I was not I had no awareness of, of, you know, Led Zeppelin, Black Sabbath, or anything like that. I, I I start. You know, I started right at that. I entered the stream right at that sort of MTV glam metal moment, and then i was like fully immersed in that. i was into Poison and Guns and Roses and the 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 kind of the eighty seven probably right around 87 was like when all that stuff was kind of exploding i think that's when hysteria came out i could be wrong
0: i think it did come out in 87 yeah i do think like Def leopard probably Def leopard and brian adams are like the two artists that uh nailed the Mutt Lang sound uh the most
1: which which uh what should the brian adams stuff did Mutt Lang do
0: he did um waking up the Neighbors." was the first time they worked together. Um, and then they did a few more albums in the nineties, um, and then kind of went their separate ways. But I, I actually believe Brian's got, he's got his new album coming out, uh, in March. And I think he's done some work with Mutt. On oh, cool. This album again. So, yeah. And I have my first album that I ever bought here, which is Led Zeppelin four. Um, yeah, i um, heard, I've heard that one. Yeah. It, um, so uh, I was um, 16 when I decided I was going to start buying vinyl. Uh, my dad had saved all of his albums and his record players, so he kind of gave me those. But uh, Led Zeppelin IV was the first album I went to the store and bought. Um, and yeah, high school, like this was grade 10. So I was like at the peak of my Zeppelin obsession. Um, and uh, yeah, that was my first album.
1: Well so yeah it's it's kind of interesting cuz like yeah it sounds like you yeah like i definitely know kids that i went to school with like middle school and high school that were they were immersing themselves in yeah that that older stuff like they were getting into floyd zeppelin the dead whatever i my experience with older music was never it it did not happen at that time like i like it was all contemporary like from like the late 80s through when I, you know Mike's kind of like grade school to uh high school was you know you're talking about like mid 80s through like mid 80s through like late 90s and 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 so all the music almost all the music i was listening to except for some like odd like hardcore punk stuff was contemporary you know it was all like 80s 90s music and then it was later i did have that exposure to the beatles and things like that but very oh oh, rush was a was one exception um Mm -hmm. but I did not. I did not know my like basic food groups of like Zeppelin and things like that it, at that time. It, it was only much later I right. sort of became obsessed with that older stuff. So it must have been. Were you also listening to like contemporary things, or is it just?
0: I've I've been an old soul my whole music career basically. Yeah, um, but I I did sort of start like I mean yeah obviously the Beatles were first, but um, I kind of lost interest in music for a few years. But then I came back into it around uh 1415 when i first heard uh stairway to heaven and that was kind of like oh boy i should really listen to this stuff and uh and then from there yeah i sort of started like late 60s and then as i've gotten older it's uh, i've sort of grown with the years as well and like you know then i got into springsteen and now i'm sort of more like lately i've been in an 80s kick so yeah it uh the the earlier bands definitely were sort of my start as well.
1: Yeah, it's 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 kind of fascinating how people just like there are these certain ones that people are just never stop rediscovering and you know, I guess yeah, it's interesting to see like what really what really does hold up that way, but there's mm-hmm. there's something about that there's something about that 60s stuff that's just hard to it's hard to beat.
0: We are now into the guessing portion for which this podcast gets its name. For you, Hank, and any of the new listeners we might have, I'll go over the rules. I have a bag here, and in this bag is an album which I picked from my collection of over 400. Uh, I will give you three clues about the album and uh, to sort of get you moving in the right direction. Uh, Then you can ask me up to 15 yes or no questions to try and determine the identity of the album. Uh, Tip for you, you can immediately ask questions like, is it Damn the Torpedoes? Uh, But if all your questions are like that, you may run out by the end. Uh, So Hank Steamer, are you ready to guess that record? Sure. (laughs) So here are your three clues. This album was released in the 1980s. It features four singles that charted in the top 20 of the Billboard Hot 100, and this album started as a completely different project. Question 1.
1: Is it um, is it a is it a co-ed band?
0: Uh, it is. Question 2.
1: Is it some sort of uh, some sort of rock?
0: Yes. Yes. Question 3.
1: So it's a band and not a solo artist.
0: It is a band, yes. Question four.
1: Co-ed rock band in the 80s. Um, too early for, oh, well, is it Fleetwood Mac?
0: It is Fleetwood Mac.
1: <laughs> Tango in the Night?
0: Thanks, Steamer. congratulations. Is "Tango in the Night," which I have here on cassette. I don't actually own it on vinyl, but I've got it on cassette, so I still have it. But yes, "Tango in the Night," um, and uh, I think you, that that's like the fastest anyone has ever uh, guessed the album. So, congratulations on that. Nice. Um, now, when when we were uh, talking about doing the podcast, you gave me a list of some albums that you like, and I noticed a lot of Fleetwood Mac on there which is part of the reason why I chose Tango in the night. So, when did you start listening to the band?
1: Um, Fluid Mac is a band that um I I absorbed them in the way that everyone else typically does for for a lot of my life just just, you know, just the singles, you know, just just everything coming through. And I think it was probably about maybe, you know, around maybe like around 15 years ago or something. I I think I don't really remember what it was that like led me towards like starting to think more deeply about them as like an album band. Um, I, I remember, I remember there, it being sort of significant, like, like getting the, the self-titled Fleetwood Mac album on LP, the, the first one with, uh, Lindsey and Stevie. Um, and just really getting into that. And like, I, I don't know, I, I think, I think, I think with a lot of classic rock, so to speak, um, there's, again, there's the two phases of it. There's like the kind of hearing this stuff in like an ambient way through the radio through walking in a store and it's playing you know just kind of in a passive way and then there's this second stage of like getting the albums and really like buckling down and i think that's happened that's happened to me with like most of the major sort of like classic rock artists you know i, I i'm putting fluid like loosely in like a classic rock framework where it's like i liked it just fine but then like i heard it for real and then i was like oh my god and like that yeah got that record, got rumors, um, and just really, I think really started to just identify with like the different, I love, you know, this is like with the band too, where you have multiple singers in a band, Fleetwood Mac, not just multiple singers, singers but multiple songwriters. And there's just something so, you know, it, there's, I don't know, the, the the voice, I mean, you know, obviously like anyone else, I find this, this the backstory intriguing, the Lindsay and Stevie thing, um, but just the voices i mean like that caliber of singer and songwriter to have three of them in the band and then to have such a phenomenal rhythm section and, and and at this time i would have i would have really had no idea about the prior incarnation the peter green thing which i've only really checked out more recently which i sorry, i like a lot uh especially i think the record's called then play on i think the peter green stuff is great but i mean if i if i'm really being honest like you know my favorites are the i guess like the five I think there are five records from self-titled field Mac I think is 75 and then Rumours and then Rumours Tusk Mirage Mirage Tango Yeah right so so those are to me like you know as a as a five album I mean I don't really know many other you know consecutive runs in a catalog that I I love that much you know I mean I guess I could say Sabbath or Zeppelin Probably even the band, I'm sure there's a five album Dylan run in there, probably some of the like early 70s Stevie Wonder, uh, maybe Joni Mitchell, maybe Neil Young. You know, that's yeah, I think with jazz, it's a little tougher because it's just not as much of an album art form. Um, There are definitely five Miles Davis albums in a row that I that I love or Coltrane albums, Um, but that that five album run is tough to beat. You know, and and, and and for the last one to be as good as the first one and in its own way is also something pretty, pretty incredible. Um,
0: yeah, I'll uh, I'll give some uh, facts about the album for those who aren't too familiar with it. But Tango in the Night was released on April 13th, 1987. Uh, as we just mentioned, it's the fifth album by the band's most successful lineup of Lindsey Buckingham, Stevie Nicks, Christine McVie, John McVie and Mick Fleetwood. To date, it is also the last album made by this iteration of the group. Uh, The album was extremely successful, selling 15 million copies worldwide to become Fleetwood Mac's second best-selling album behind the legendary Rumors. And as I mentioned in the clues, it features four top 20 singles, with Big Love and Little Lies both charting in the top five. Now, it's interesting with this album because it sort of started as a Lindsey Buckingham solo album, and then he just kind of included everyone else, and then it turned into the next Fleetwood Mac album. It when you look at their discography, I think it really is their most kind of '80s sounding album. Yeah. Uh, obviously, Mirage came out in 1982, but that was still kind of in that transition phase between the '70s and '80s. Um, and I have to say, I think that production really fits Fleetwood Mac, uh, the kind of like big '80s sounding album. it it, it fits the band well here. Um, And I also find it's kind of the songs um, to me, like when I listen to it, it feels uh, there's almost kind of a bit of a melancholy feel to the album, like a a bit subdued in a way. Uh, But what, what songs for you stand out?
1: You know, um, I mean, seven wonders, uh, seven wonders is a big one. Um, I'm looking at the, I'm looking at the title, I'm looking at the songs here because I sometimes get a little bit confused about like what's on this versus what's on um Mirage. Seven Wonders, uh the title track, I mean everywhere is incredible, Little Lies is incredible. I'm realizing that like the end of side two, I'm I'm as I'm looking at this like less familiar with right off the top of my head. Man, I mean, it's just like something like like Seven Wonders. It's like, like you said, just like, you know, Stevie like singing at her peak. Like the production is just sort of like spot on. It's like, yeah, it, there is something amazing about hearing them adapt like so gracefully to like this 80s pop thing. It's, it's like, like, like they, yeah, they feel like perfectly at home in like 70s, on 70s radio, and then perfectly at home on like 80s radio. And it mm-hmm. doesn't, it's one of the more seamless transitions. It's not like one of those things where it's like, oh God, what happened to that band? Like, they, you know, I th- I, I, like a, a friend of mine, a colleague at Rolling Stone, Corey Gro. And I often talk about, you know, he, he's he's talked about this thing of like, you know, the 80s was like it's like it transformed every every artist that existed before it. There was like almost this like prism effect that happened in the 80s where just like something weird happened, you know, like with the production or or something just got something got weird or, 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 or they they somehow had to reckon with that sound. Mm-hmm. And it, 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 it's more graceful on some than others, you know. And I think Fleetwood Mac would be one of the most one of the most uh, seamless transitions. You know, I think it's interesting because, like, I think hearing one of the things that you learn, like delving into Fleetwood Mac, and obviously this is there from the Peter Green era too. But there's this these performances that I always watch. Um, I'm trying to think what year this is from, but like, I don't know if you've ever seen. I'm looking this up right now. Um, these live performances of of like of like I'm so afraid. Which is a track from the, I believe, the self-titled, um, where they're playing it live. It's got to be mid '70s, and you know, lindsay has got the afro, and it's, and and it's more of like a, almost power trio thing. Like like you, you see how like rock and roll Fleetwood Mac is. I think Fleetwood Mac has this thing where if people come into it with the '80s, they think of them as essentially like a pop, a pop group. But you know, if you hear, you know, obviously that was there in the Peter Green era. They were like a, you know, a heavy blues band in a way. But you know. That was still there in the in the with the lindsay thing you know what i mean and and that element is just not that's not there on that's that's what they kind of shed as they move into the 80s um but it doesn't detract from the appeal of the band i think i think that i think lindsay buckingham is a very unique figure and that he's like a he's an incredible instrumentalist a shredding guitar player who is such a great songwriter that he doesn't have to be shredding on a record for his genius to be felt. Yeah, I just think that the, that that record is just like again, like the three so, the three songwriters. I mean, I, I mean, yeah, to, to to have to have um, to have a song as great as Seven Wonders, Stevie's song as great as Seven Wonders, to have a a Christine song as great as Everywhere or uh, Little Eyes, and then you know just like the pure Lindsay thing of like you know the title track or Big Love. It's just like you really get the strong dose of like all three of them which is what you want out of a, a Fleetwood Mac record of of, of the Lindsey Stevie era. You know, I, I think that the reason, I think there's really something to be said for that, you know, bands with multiple songwriters, let alone singers, you know, sometimes they're just more, they can just, do, they can be more potent. You know, I think, I mean, the Beatles, you know, you can't, if you're, if you're like listing the reasons why the Beatles are what they are, you have to put, you know, multiple songwriters and singers up there as like a big, A big factor you know like obviously like it doesn't have to be that way i mean like like there's no there there's other ways to greatness for sure but but if you can really like combine those forces and 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 let each person kind of sound like themselves i mean tusk is another great example of a record where it's more like their white album or something where the tracks are almost it's almost like a collection of like more solo solo type tracks um tango in the night is it's so listenable you know it's not this like sprawling odds and ends thing that Tusk is, which I love, but Tango of the night is just like seamless, you know? And, and it's like, yeah, I, I think it's, I think it's as good as rumors. Um, I, 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 I honestly think all five of those records are as good. I, I think any of them is as good as any other. I don't even really have a preference. I think they're, they're masterpieces, every, every one of those records.
0: And it, um, it's sort of interesting because obviously with this lineup of Fleetwood Mac, there's always a lot of drama. And this album wasn't short of it because Stevie Nicks was only, it it took them 18 months to make the album and Stevie Nicks was only there for two weeks. Um, And uh, then of course, after it comes out and it was a huge hit, the night before they were about to go on tour, Lindsay quit the band. And um, yeah, this album really kind of is, even though Fleetwood Mac did make more albums after Tango in the Night, in a way it is almost kind of like their last album just because it kind of ends their run on top
1: yeah absolutely I, like i'm sort of i'm looking at this um yeah so there are three fleetwood max studio albums after this okay so you've got the one i think there's the one that has there's the one that has um lindsey but not sorry stevie but not lindsey and there's the other one without lindsey and then lindsey comes back but then then christine isn't on it i I'm, I'm gonna yeah I'm gonna be totally honest i I do not really know those three records behind the mask. I'm looking at the Wikipedia now behind the mask time and say you will um I know they put out that little e p but again without christine that little e p in like twenty thirteen or something but yeah, you're right i mean it is it is kind of the end of them as like a band making new music that's reaching that's reaching people i mean do you know those those record those uh post tango records
0: not really no.
1: Yeah, I'd be I'd be curious to hear like a revisit of those whether, you know, because it's kind of like that's when they kind of started that thing of like, well, Lindsay's gone, so let's bring in whoever. And, you know, last time it was obviously, you know, currently it's obviously like Neil Finn and Mike Campbell or wh- whatever's going on with that. I mean, it's such mm-hmm. a crazy saga. Um, but yeah, I, I think they're Fleetwood Mac is a really hard band to get your head around because I think you've got those five records. And then you've got all these other periods i mean i am not an expert on pre-lindsay stevie fluid mac i do again love that record then play on kind of the classic peter green one but there are all these other periods of it that i just am not super familiar with but i think it's kind of crazy like what a history you know to have to have those two guys keeping it up for so long i'd be i'll be curious to know what the future is like like i think everyone like i'm wondering like you know will the lindsay thing ever get repaired you know will we ever see him on stage with him again i think i think that it's he was pretty vocal about kind of torching the whole thing when he was promoting his most recent solo record but yeah i mean there's something you know i love Lindsay's solo stuff um, especially the last couple of records he's put out and i love stevie's solo stuff but it's hard to beat that chemistry it's really hard to beat that chemistry and i think that you know yeah i i really i really do i really do it is kind of i, I really would. Put that question forward of like what what other band you know what other band would have a five album run like that
0: well yeah the listeners uh maybe let us know in the comments what you think is uh, the best five album run um lastly uh i wanted to mention because fleetwood mac was the last concert that i went to uh before COVID. i saw them in calgary in uh, november of 2019 and I the the main reason I wanted to go was to see Mike Campbell because I'm a huge Tom Petty fan and I sure. I'm so pissed off that I missed the boat on seeing Tom before he passed away. But Mike is such a huge part of the Tom Petty story and like when I play his song like the Tom Petty songs on guitar I'm always playing Mike's parts. So I really wanted to see him and uh but we went to the show and the the most surprising thing for me was seeing uh how entertaining Mick Fleetwood is um you know his drum solo was like crazy he runs out on in front of the stage and is playing like an african drum and stuff i was i was uh you know he was probably the most entertaining drummer i've seen live since neil peart um, yeah and uh Yes, but I, I wanted to ask you, have you
1: seen Fleetwood Mac live? I have. Yeah, I saw them. I saw like both of those reunion tours. I saw the one, like they were like, I want to say like 2014 and 2015, and 2016. The first one was, um, the first one was, I think, when it was without Christine and the second one was with Christine. So they were, they were fantastic. I mean, they were, I, I'm, I'm so happy that I, you know, you know, to get to see like a classic intact lineup like that. I, I yeah I mean I loved it and and I and I and I think too, I agree with you. I think that Mick Fleetwood is such an underrated drummer. I think that he's kind of like a personality, and just like everyone is very you know the 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 personality factor and Fleetwood Mac is obviously huge and dominates a lot of the conversation around them but and Mick Mick is sort of a kind of a goofy guy, and that maybe can overshadow, but he he's just like just like a he's from that generation of just like badass like old school. British blues rock drummers and he's just such a he has such a great groove and such a great feel and he, he just like he's just a monster drummer I mean like like and, and I was talking with another colleague about the There There are not a lot of those left like the you know if you think about it it's like you're talking about like a player from you know the John Bonham generation I mean that's you know there's like Mick Fleetwood there's like Ian Pace from Deep Purple who's still playing and I don't really know who else is around of that, you know, obviously, you know, Bill Ward is still with us, but really not performing. Uh, obviously, Ginger Baker has passed. Um, but there's that, that generation, I mean, you know, Keith Moon, that that generation is so, I mean, that's, that's like sort of the cornerstones of like heavy, heavy rock drumming. And um, there's not many of them left. And I mean, like, I, I, I don't know that there are any left besides Mick Fleetwood and Ian Pace, that are, are really in that, truly in that, right in that era, kind of like, 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 were around at the time of, you know, the bottoms and the gentures and are still around performing. I mean, am I, am I leaving anyone out? I don't know.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think you got them all. I, I definitely, uh, I definitely think, yeah, he's, he, when you you look back on those kind of loud drummers of the late 60s, yeah, he's really one of the last left for sure. And still going strong
1: and, jo- and john mcvee too no less i mean he's mm-hmm. kind of an unassuming figure but i mean that that rhythm section i mean you're talking about like i mean what is it like 1967 or something i mean when when did they start yeah
0: it was around there yeah
1: I mean, that's insane like mm-hmm. like what other what other band i mean obviously like you know the who is still touring not with their original rhythm section i mean i i just i don't even know who else you know what what other like yeah, I guess I guess Roger Glover and Ian Pace would be another one. You know, I, I would just say, see this stuff, see these people while you can, especially now. Like that's always a you just don't know how many more chances you're going to get to see these people.
0: Exactly. Yes. Uh, well, we've reached the end of the episode. I want to thank Hank Steamer uh, for being our guest here today. It's been a lot of fun to have a good conversation with you.
1: Awesome. Yeah, it's been so much fun. Thanks, Jackson. This is a it's a fun concept for the show and you I know, wish you the best with it and always happy to talk music. So I appreciate it.
0: Thank you. Yeah. I also want to thank our listeners as this is a new podcast. It's good to leave reviews wherever you're listening, but make sure you also let your friends know podcasts live and die by word of mouth. So if you have a friend that loves music, just let them know that we're out there and to give us a listen. We're also on Instagram at guess that record. So you can follow us over there. Remember to keep rocking and we'll see you on the next episode of Guess That Record.